This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm just waiting for... That, there's an arm waving. That's my signal. I can begin. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, and thank you so, so, so much for coming. My name is Vivian French, and I have the very good fortune to be the guest selector for the children's programme this year. And um, when I was asked what I wanted, the thrust I wanted to take, I said that what I wanted more than anything else was to programme uh, some events for children who find uh, writing and reading not maybe as easy as their peers. And this event came out of that idea. And we've been doing various different other things as well. So I'm so delighted to actually to be here and to be able to introduce to you uh, Dr. John Rack. I got it right. Uh, one of my problems is that I don't actually have specified dyslexia, but I do have confusion with words. So you never know what I might say. <laughs> Makes life so much more interesting. Um, I once walked into uh, a publisher's office and they said, is it raining outside? And I said, yes, and it's terrible because I haven't brought my washing machine with me. <laughs> washing machine? Macintosh? Anybody identify with that? And so we have Dr. John Rack, who is, I'm delighted to see here. And we also have Matthew, uh, Matthew McFarish, who is an actor, a published playwright. Mm -hmm. He's writing his first novel. He's writing a children's book. Yes. He's a songwriter, published. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Uh, I'm the European ambassador for Stop the Silence, and I prevent child sexual abuse in Europe and the United States. That's sounding pretty good. No, Anything I else? I don't prevent it single-handed. It's a massive <laughs> organization. We were just talking about whether we should do some vocal warm-ups before <laughs> we start. We thought perhaps we should come on and go kind of <laughs> or whatever. Now, it's going to be fairly, a fairly free-fall because I quite like to run these things on a fairly casual basis. But one thing I would like to say before we start is that I know that there are going to be a great number of you who are going to actually want to ask questions. So what we're going to do is we're going to intersperse the questions and I would ask you to direct your questions. You will be given a microphone. Please don't ask a question without the microphone. And you can direct your questions at either John or at Matthew. Or if you think I'm going to know any answers, you can ask me. But chances are that I probably won't know the answer. Um, so if we can run it like that, I would be really, really grateful. And just to begin the proceedings, I would just like to explain a little bit about what I do. Um, I do write children's books, but one of the things that I enjoy more than anything else is going into schools and running writing workshops with children. Now, I don't ask the children to do the writing. I do the scribing with exceptionally bad spelling, and, but it doesn't matter, and terrible handwriting, but it doesn't matter. And the children give me the ideas. And... Uh, by the end of the session, we have a written story, and then we illustrate it, and then we publish it, and we put it in the school library. And what I really like, more than anything else in the whole wide world, is when a teacher says to me, I never knew that those children could write like that. And it's like, yes, they can. And that's where I'm coming from. 
And I wonder whether perhaps we could start, would you like to choose the very first question? Now, we might need the lights up just a wee bit so we can actually see who wishes to ask a question. And we'll begin with one question, and then we'll see where we go from there. There's someone at the front. Um, oh, here comes the microphone. Here comes the microphone. Here comes the microphone. We've got a super speedy microphone deliverer. Some people are, are faster than others, but he's been chosen for his twinkly toes. Hello there. Um, I have a nine-year-old son who's nearly ten, and he has fantastic ideas. Um, and our difficulty is to get him to write anything. That physical act of sitting still with a pen or a pencil um, to get him to form the letters. And I would really like to know how we can help him as his parents in this day and age how we can help him to get the written word across so he can be writing stories or reports or whatever he is needing to do for his education. I, I can give a bit of a, a sort of educational answer, but these guys can probably give a more inspirational answer, so see how we do together. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say always is technology, technology, technology. Um, writing is is a challenge, but you can you can speak into a, a machine they, they, that recognises speech quite well. You can write fairly roughly and, you, and tidy it up later. You can have someone else write for you. Um, you can learn to write using systems that let you put odd fragments of ideas together and then and then build it into a story. Writing, I'm going to get off on one here. But the trouble with writing is it seems often an overwhelming task. Um, so what we recommend with people is to break it down into the parts. You know, write all, give me all your ideas, put them on cards, sort them out, put them onto computers. Um, okay, now you've got your ideas, how are they going to group them together? What will make a good structure? So make the task smaller and more achievable. Get rid of the physical barriers by using technology. Um, but also, don't, don't sweat. You know, there are other ways of expressing yourself. Um, so yes, it's important, and it, it has to be addressed. Um, but find other things to do too. Can I just come in here in that I can totally identify with that. Um, I'm going to ask Matthew in a moment as well, but I mean, for me, the pencil was the enemy. And um, I mean, I've written over 200 books. I have never written one of those books with a pen or a pencil. It's always straight onto the computer. And, um, and I think absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm a great believer actually, if you can get a really cheap and cheerful tape recorder and actually tell the story and then get somebody else to scribe it down because a story is a story is a story. It doesn't matter about the physical means whereby you transfer it to paper. It's the story that matters. But what, how, how do you write? How do I write? Um, yeah, I would say like just take the worry out of it because you know when I write a play, the, the first draft is really raw and, and quite the, the spelling is very imaginative. And uh, I would say remember that you know a professional play when it hits the stage that's draft five. And the first draft, you know, as long as I understand what it says, you know, and it's that refining process. And even Stephen King, I think, writes three drafts of a novel before anyone sees it. So there is no, no problem with it being disorganised and, and messy. Another thing that I do that is, um, like, my new novel is 27, no, sorry, 97 chapters. And at the moment, those exist as 97 different coloured pieces of paper on the floor, which is, looks like I'm crazy, you know. So, uh, and that's okay with me because that, that's my process and I've developed it that kind of helps me take all the ideas that are here and just kind of physicalise them. 
But um, yeah, just rejoice in creativity. Don't don't worry too much. You know, there's wonderful systems in schools now to support other ways of, as you say, expressing yourself. So. There's an American author called Fanny Flagg. I don't know whether anybody here has read any of her books. And she's actually, she has problems. Um, well, I don't like using the word problems, but she, she finds other ways of getting her writing done. And she actually has a washing line that stretches the length of apparently her very long haul. And as she thinks of an idea, she writes it on a piece of paper and then uh, pins it with a clothes peg to this washing line until she's got her story ideas. And sometimes she draws the ideas and sometimes she writes them, depending on how you know, she's feeling. So there's so many different ways of doing it, which is fantastic. I mean, I always say, you know, if you can't come through the door, you go down the chimney. <laughs> Should we have, a, let's have another question. Uh, Matthew, anybody got a question for Matthew specifically? Can't see. Nobody's putting their hand up. Anybody else with a question? Keep thinking of those questions. This is what we're here for. Yes, there's somebody here. Sorry, just really following on from what this lady said, I also have a nine-year-old boy who is significantly dyslexic, and I can totally identify with the business of, could you please sit still to do the homework? But he can't. He doesn't like to sit still when he does his homework. So it was suggested to me recently, well, maybe he doesn't have to sit still. Yeah, yeah. And why not have a, a whiteboard that he can walk over to and write something on and come back? And I, I'm sure you're familiar with that um, program they did on um, the lady, Tara. Um, and she learns, she's an actress and she was learning. Cara Taunton. Well, anyway, she. She never, she always walks around the room and she remembers where she was for different pieces and that's how she remembers her lines. And she has them stuck on that. And also the business of, of particularly boys and sitting down, um, they find it challenging at times, whereas a girl will, will sometimes sit still. But it, it was suggested maybe, I don't know what you think about using some kind of a, like a worry, a worry ball or something that they can fiddle with if they're fiddly. I mean, I find he's very... What do you think about, you know, encouraging them when they're trying to do their homework? To is it? Do you think it's acceptable? I know they can't walk around the classroom. Yeah. But at home, where they have the option, do you think well, that's feasible? Well, I watched a, a thing recently. It was a, a lecture about the problem with modern school system. Is it's based on the Victorian idea of, of an industry. You know, some children learn better on their own, and some learn better in a team. You know, in a group. So, and also. Uh, children are, are batched by their age and some some children thrive with children older than them and so the system we have you know it runs on bells and, and times and it's just that's probably the easiest way of doing it but it's not for every child the easiest way of, or the best way of learning so um, I mean I, when I was doing a master's degree in classical and contemporary text I developed a methodology for collaborative uh, playwriting and uh, if, if you know that there's two kinds of ways of writing a play there's the old Shakespeare way which is the master you know one author sits down and writes every line for every actor. And the other the way of doing it, which happens a lot in, in, in Europe, is uh, you get a group of actors and they do a devised process and it's very collaborative. And one creates, you know, they both create plays that you would pay, pay a ticket to go and see, but the audience aren't aware of how that, that script that they're witnessing came together. Um, so one is very free and very loose and it's people on their feet and they're improvising really. And it never really began, it, the problem for me was that it was quite disposable because if you missed that performance, you could never then buy it on Amazon and read it because it never existed as a, as a text. So I created a process um, very similar to the, the scribe thing you're talking about. You just let people be creative and, and um, especially actors improvising and basically they would just have a conversation in character 
um, and they would be on their feet. And I, I did it at a drama school in Surrey, and I, I heard afterwards they were all 16 to 18 year olds, and they were all very nervous that they, they knew I was coming down to to help them write a play, and they'd all imagined that they'd all be sitting around desks doing an English class writing a play for two <laughs> weeks. And it was the opposite for me because uh, to take people's um, inhibitions away and just kind of get them to relax and just fall into character. And if, if you're on your feet and creating, if that frees you up, then absolutely you can support that. And as you say, there's, uh, there's audio technology that can capture your sound, the words and put them on a page for you. Or, you know, as I do it, you can make it as colourful as you want. It's, um, it's about finding other means of getting the ideas out of your head and say, if you want to write on a, a washing line, whatever works for you, you know, I would encourage that, absolutely. What do you think? Yeah, I, I often spend my time meeting parents um, and giving advice and reading adults who are dyslexic and, and then going back to schools and saying, you know, this is what I think you should do. So I'm not always very welcome in school because I do say, you know, let them move around. Um, is that me doing that? I think it's my Okay. Um, um, having different places for different activities, as you say with the Cara Toynton example. Um, many, most people learn better when they're doing something, it, or they remember better what they have done. Um, this is the worst. You listen, we speak, you forget. Um, uh, if we show you some pictures, I've got one or two pictures to show you, maybe you'll remember a bit more, but if you were actually actively involved in doing something, that's, that's how things get into memory. Um, and it's the same with writing. The mechanics of writing, you learn it best if you practice it. Sad to say, you know, you do have to do some slogging if you want to learn to spell write, R-I-G-H-T. Um, you can practice that and, and it becomes a movement, like, like learning to play a piano scale becomes a movement that you, you can do automatically. Uh, so there are ways of learning these things that are hard and, and some you have to learn. Um, just digressing slightly, uh, dyslexic adults I've worked with in prison often say the first thing they want to learn is how to do a signature because they've never had a proper signature. Um, you can't get by without that, but some people don't get that until they meet someone like me in prison. Um, so <laughs> that's one of more likely one of my colleagues, in fact. Um, anyway, so I've got digress from what you were saying about uh, uh, what I'm saying is yes, whatever it takes. Um, and we should be more flexible. We should accommodate differences much more in our, in our systems. Um, and I'm sorry, teachers, we're always putting more pressure on you um, and asking for more, but, you know, it, I think it's worth it. Yeah, no, I would, I would totally identify with the doing something to learn things. I mean, I was an actor for years, and I used to learn my lines while I was moving. And if somebody said, right, let's have a sit-down, read-through, or, or six to sit-down, when we'll go through the lines, I was completely... I mean, I don't know whether you find that, but if I'm not moving to the lines, I couldn't remember them. And I used to get, and people used to really get very anxious because they'd think, oh, she doesn't know her lines. But the moment I got on the stage and I was walking from there to there, the line came. And it was, the whole thing was a sort of intrinsic, uh, I don't know, a body learning, almost more than a mind learning. I mean, is that true that we learn with more than just, uh, I mean, how do we, how do we learn? <laughs> how do we learn? That's the mystery, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. We, 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 we learn in different ways, but the, the hardest part is to recall. Um, you know, we, most of what you hear is actually going in, um, and that's, it's when you, you know, when you're asleep or when you're drunk or when you're sometimes hypnotized, things, things come out. Uh, the challenge is to get them out at the right time when you need it, and that's why you have to learn these tricks. Um, so 
what goes in is, is very variable and it's different for different people according to their interests of course um, but the challenge is to get it out um, and, and this method of, of recalling things in particular places uh, and, and absolutely what I was saying before it's best to be able to recall or perform a skill without thinking about it it's when you start to think and fish about uh, that you start to get the wrong thing out and the wrong word comes out or you start to get things in the wrong order um, because that's that's not a good way of doing it so you have to practice so it becomes automatic um, you have to find ways of producing things without thinking which is what we're doing now <laughs> absolutely uh, now I know that you've got some slides and some information for us haven't you do you want now is a good time now is a very good time yes well, just to introduce myself, I'll stand up to introduce myself. Oh, now I can't see anything. So, um, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I, if, if this is me, yeah, I'm, I'm John Rack, and I'm, uh, I work for an organisation called Dyslexia Action. Um, I'm basically a psychologist involved in research and assessment and training teachers uh, and developing things, a bit of everything. And I'm delighted to be here, but I feel a little bit off, you know, off my natural territory. Um, but as with as ever, whenever I get involved in things involving dyslexia, you know, we all we all are speaking the same language. So um, I think this is my natural tendency is to lecture, and I and I don't want to try and do that. But I just want to sh show you one or two key things. Um, and I thought if we're going to talk about dyslexia and and different ways of doing things, I'd better bring some pictures. So we obviously don't want to b have children excluded. Uh, we do want to see children succeeding and thriving um, and I'm going to miss that one because that's somebody's dyslexia story and I think you pr there'll probably be enough dyslexia stories in the room. Um, Cara Toynton, I was lucky enough to work with Cara on that programme that you described and she's a fantastic woman so that was, and she, I'm, I think she articulated what it is to be dyslexic very well um, so I have to put her up and Eddie Izzard. These are just a few of my favourites. <laughs> I was thinking about talking to children. I don't see so many children here because I, I was worried that all of these would be out of date. But I hope you recognise some of these people, whatever age you are. Um, there's a lot of them about. Um, and uh, uh, we know that being dyslexia is no, it need not be a barrier to success. And we know that many people with dyslexia have particular talents. Um, and these are, I just thought I'd put five things that we do know, just you know, in case you know nothing um, about it. I'm, usually people that come to these events do know quite a lot. Anyway, you usually get it from your parents, so it's in the genes. Um, um, it's a problem with words, primarily, and the sounds of words, primarily. It's not really anything visual, and people still get confused about that. When it comes to reading, my big message is always, you can get there. Uh, and once you're over the hurdle of reading, lots of things become easier. So never give up on reading. Um, when it comes to spelling, well, my answer to that is what's all the fuss about? Um, you know, does it really matter? There are spell checkers, there are people who can copyright. Don't let spelling get in the way of what you want to say. And I put the rest is up to you. Um, and by that I mean Whatever you want to do, what, whatever your talents are, whatever direction you want to go in, dyslexia is not a reason not to go there. It's not a barrier. Um, you can be a writer, you can, you can be a chef, you can be something creative. So 
you know, this thing about if you're dyslexic, you shouldn't do this or you should do that, it doesn't apply. It applies to people who are dyslexic just as much as it applies to people who are not dyslexic. So that's, that's my slightly, maybe, off-message message, but that's what I think. You can do whatever you like. Um, some things are slightly more difficult because if you are dyslexic, there is something in there that is sticking, if you like. Um, and we know quite a bit about that now. Um, we know a bit about the bits of the brain where there are differences in people who are dyslexic. And they are here in this bit to do with language. So if you're dyslexic and you're doing something with words, you're not quite lighting up enough in this area here, um, which is to do with how words are registered and how they're produced. Um, so those differences are measurable. You can put people in a scanner and you can see, okay, this is different to this. Um, so anybody who says it doesn't exist really needs to look at this sort of evidence. It does, you can see it. Um, it's real. Um, and that's important. This is just a little bit of an aside. Some of the people who are studying brains are finding that actually what seems to happen is, in some areas maybe there's a little bit less of what there should be. Uh, but in some other uh, areas, maybe a little bit more. So we don't know this yet, but there is at least a possibility that things in dyslexic brains do get a little bit out of place. And there may be some advantages. We, we don't know that. But, but it's not all about things that don't work. It's about things being a bit different. Um, so that's my other message. Tell, t shut me up here. No, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I, I say I regress and I go into lecture mode because that's what I often do. Um, but I'd much rather have a conversation. So I'll, I'll, I'll go quick now. Um, I'll say, what does this part of the brain do? I've said most of this already. It's the part of the speech system. So dyslexia is about words. It's about getting your words out, particularly doing it quickly. So if, you're in a, if you have a class teacher who likes to say, you know, um, who's the Prime Minister of, I don't know what, France. Quick, quick, quick. Well, that's terrible, because even if you did know it, you can't, you can't produce it when you're being put on the spot. It's that ability to fish out the word, the right name, under pressure. Um, and that's not, it, it's in there, it doesn't always come out so quickly. So it's used when, when things are named, when you have to retrieve names, and when you have to give labels to things. And the example I put up at the beginning, which I missed over, is someone who says, my problem is I just can't remember the labels. You know, I, can, I know what it is, I know what it does, but I can't remember what it's called. And, and that's, that's the core part of, of the problem in dyslexia. Uh, this is just one, two more things to say, and then I will shut up. Um, uh, one thing to say is you look at the brain and you think, oh, my brain is different, I'm dyslexic, and I can't do anything. Well, if you learn, guess what? your brain changes. It's not that your brain is fixed and it stops what you're doing. When you learn something new, when you become better at something, they look at your brain again and say, oh, it looks different now. So it's not that we're limited by what someone might see first when they look in your brain or look at it. Uh, it changes as you learn things and as you become more experienced. And I say this sometimes to teachers. I say, when you're, when you're doing what you call teaching, what you're doing actually is you're changing people's brains. You're doing applied cognitive neuropsychology. 
and they think that sounds very grand, but it's it's just what they do all the time. So, it, you know, it's, we get a bit seduced by the brain, and, and we might think that that's nothing you can do. There is always something you can do, uh, and changing, learning things and, be, and getting better at things has a big impact. Slight digression as well, music is one of the things that has the biggest measurable changes in terms of the way your brain is organized. Um, so um, that's a very powerful thing um, that, can, that they can see the differences quickly. And the last thing is, what about strengths? And this is the bit I did want to show on the picture. Because we've talked about not being able to retrieve words quickly, but many, many people with dyslexic are good at this sort of thing. Um, they're good at seeing whether the two shapes in the pattern there and under A would be the same if you twisted one around or whether one's a mirror image of the other or whether they're, they're different shapes altogether. So I've practiced on this one and I know, I know that two of them are the same and one of them is different, but I won't tell you which. Um, this one is harder because usually when you're given this sort of task, you're given something to work with. But you can, you ca you can do it by using visual imagery uh, and you can say which of these um, little kits, if you like, on the bottom could you use to put together to make the thing on the top? So that's, I think that's quite hard. And I think I know, but until I've done it, I wouldn't be completely sure. People with dyslexia are often very good at this sort of thing, visual, spatial imagery, working with shapes, seeing how things fit together, um, putting things together like this. Um, if you, these, these are like cutouts, and if you, if again, if you folded them up, one of those along the bottom would make the shape along the top. This is what I spend a lot of my time doing, giving these kinds of tasks to people. But these kinds of tasks I give to people to show them what they can do, um, because it's, it's, this is not really anything that is a problem if you're dyslexic, but it isn't. And more often than not, people who are dyslexic are quite good at this sort of thing. I'm not going to say the answer. Well, have we got the answer? It's... No, you don't want to know, do you? <laughs> okay. And the last thing is, is this thing about seeing the pattern and seeing the whole. And this is a, uh, uh, something that's involved in dyslexia, also involved in autism. Um, so can you find the shape on the left, the simple shape, within the pattern on the right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not too hard, that one, I think. It's, I've, I've found an, an answer there. Um, but there are some people who really find it hard to see the details in the, w within the big picture. They only see the big picture, and they don't see what's inside it. There is some suggestion that that's more the case if you're dyslexic, you're a big picture person, not details. My experience is that ten doesn't tend to apply to something like this. It might apply to something like names and dates and spellings, <laughs> but it doesn't really apply to uh, logical things. Um, uh, and there's another suggestion. Can you one of the, which of those is is uh, black dots is bigger than the other? The same. You know they're the same. Yeah, you've done it before. Um, but some people uh, are very influenced by the context uh, because they see that the overall thing. So there are all these things to do with spatial skills, to do with context, uh, and how you integrate information. Uh, these are not problems for people who are dyslexic. Uh, that's why they're good at putting things together without any instructions. That's why many of them become good architects and designers, uh, but not all. And I stop for a bit. That's good. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
I have to say, it's always very reassuring when you hear somebody like that. I had, I had this thing about you know being asked to say something very, very quickly. Uh, you're put in a situation. I once arrived at a school to do sessions um, with uh, with children, and the head teacher met me, and I was in a bit of a rush, and I was in a bit of a hurry, and she said, "Vivian French, how lovely to meet you. By the way, I hear you, I hear you have a great many daughters. How many daughters do you have?" And I was like, and I said, five. I have four daughters." <laughs> But in my head, I was saying, in my head, I was saying four. What came out was five. And I spent the rest of the day having to lie <laughs> because I didn't actually, I didn't actually have the nerve to say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. And in fact, I can never, ever go back to Dorset because not only did the head take this and run with it, she wrote it. In the local, in the local uh, educational board thing, that we had this author who has five daughters and has lived to tell the tale. So you know, it, it happens, and I mean, it happens so fast, doesn't it? That you, you just don't get it. But I was going to ask Matthew, when can you can you tell us a little bit about when did you discover? What was your school experience like? High school, yeah. I was I was trying to work out whether I was. I went through high school like six years. Uh, of, of teachers and no one noticed I was dyslexic and I think that's, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 19, I was at university. I think that's possibly because I became so good at, at appearing to be coping, you know. So I, I never forget an English class in second year and we used to, the teacher used to make us read aloud which was a nightmare. So what I used to do is I would work out when it was my turn, I would work out when I'd be reading. I'd <laughs> flick ahead and I would literally learn the passage and I've worked out if I read a sentence three times I'd, I'd generally know what it says. And so I used to be very good. I would learn the passage and then I wouldn't be reading aloud. I'd literally just be, you know, like learning lines. And now I've, I've obviously got quite adept at that. My first professional job as an actor was at a Douglas Maxwell play. It was a 55-minute monologue. And everyone was like, how did you learn that? And I was like, well, it's not really a problem. <laughs> just, mm -hmm. just read it a lot of times. And um, when I was filming, I'm in a, a children's show on CBBS. It's on in the morning. And we used to do 20, 22 scenes a day. So every single night I had to learn 36 pages of dialogue. And, uh, and all the other actors used to struggle with that, and I really didn't have an issue with it. So I think that came from just having such an early experience of having to retain information. But it came from a fear of appearing stupid, of, of reading but it wrong. Didn't, didn't you, what happened to me was that I would work out which passage was mine, mm -hmm. and I would learn it, and then somebody would go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and I would get the passage before mine. Yeah. And, 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 and so you know, I, I, I used to get shown up. But I think it's better now. I mean, like, my nephews are all in, in school, and I, and I understand that, you know, they're, they're actively looking for children who are struggling, and this whole no one gets left behind. So, but in my day, in my day, <laughs> like I finished high school in 2000. <laughs> but I managed to, like, when I was 15 years old, I won, uh, it was a thing called Celtic Connections. It was a song hunting, song hunter competition. And, uh, and even though I was, like, in the lowest group in English for, for spelling and everything and reading, I managed to win an, an international. Um, Lyric, I was a songwriter, and I thought, why didn't the teachers put two and two and say, you know, how is he, how is he able to compose words, you know, when outside of school almost, but I can't do it inside of school. And I, I felt I was ashamed, really. But um, yeah, I think school was very stressful, as it is for any teenager. You just don't want to appear different, so mm. you find coping mechanisms. I'm pretty sure my father's dyslexic, but and my dad's day, you would get the belt if you got it wrong. So he he managed to get around that pretty quick, you know. So. Is that very common, do you think? I mean, I, I would say it is that, that children actually learn to memorise. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, 
and it's and it's a good example of the fact that you, you can learn it. It might take two or three times to do it, um, and you can, and the more you do it. So your experience, Matthew, is, is a good example where what you had to do made you actually better than people who hadn't had to do that. So that that is an example where it, you know could be seen as an advantage. Although in, in my profession, I can give you two examples of where it's an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, and in every in everything I'm doing, if I'm doing theatre or, or if you, even if you're doing television, um, like the first. If you're doing Tiger, the first part of the whole month filming is you sit around with all the cast and all the crew, and, uh, and all, obviously all these famous actors, and you're very nervous anyway. And you do the table read, and you just read the script, which is a nightmare. And so uh, for that kind of thing, I, I would I would learn it in advance. But um, so if you imagine, some sometimes they'll make changes, or you arrive on the day and they give you what's called pink pages, and that's when the writers <laughs> changed it. So you've just got to learn it, and it's going to get stuck in. So what would happen is everyone's reading and everyone's listening. And I would be flicking ahead and, and I would be learning my lines that are coming up. And then I would go back to where we were and I've now missed the scene because I, I was having to do something else. So in that, in that sense, it was really stressful because you would kind of miss out. Um, but in other scenarios, like if I've got a casting, my agent will phone me and say, you know, it's Holby City next week. And because they're very comfortable and used to working with dyslexics, I'll get the script before the rest of the actors. So I'll get it like the day before or I can turn up two hours early and get the script. And so I can go away and learn it and I can work on the scene. And then I've got like a, an advantage, I've got Head Start and all the other actors who are not dyslexic who just turn up and, and just, you know, do a cold read. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, in some, in some ways it really helps, in other ways it, it really takes away from my experience. I think maybe uh, it's time for another question. Um, um, if we could have, I can't actually see whether there's a hand up. Can, can, can you see? Um, yes, there's, there's some, somebody at the back here on the edge of the aisle. Um, I was interested to hear you say, uh, reading, you'll get there, okay? I'm 61. I come from a family of four dyslexics, dyspraxics as well. Um, I taught for 20 years in a secondary school as an art teacher. Um, I did a dyslexic teacher training, and nobody realised that I was actually dyslexic. It was only when I started to work with my son that I thought, I can't do that, I can't do that. And the things that catch me are now reading on the screen. I just can't do it, I'm exhausted. Reading off a piece of paper. I can work in a group where people speak. Concepts just like go in one ear and come out of the other ear. Um, and it's like, well, how do you cope with that? It's really very, very difficult. It's quite humiliating, but I've got past that stage. Yeah. Well, I thank you for that. And and I, I thought you I thought you might be going to tell me off because you know there are some people who, who don't get there with reading, but they are they are they are the exception. Um, and it's partly because you know we, we we can learn to recognize the things that we see. So we learn to recognize faces and we learn to recognize places. Um, visual recognition is is you know is, is a very impressive skill and many dyslexic people in early school would learn by look and say so they'd recognize whole words and or they or they would they would kind of figure it out because they know what they think it's going to say so they'd use all sorts of other skills it's now we've moved into teaching by phonics which i mean i'll be in trouble for this is a good thing um, but that's what really catches you out if you're dyslexic because you have to understand how each individual letter maps onto a sound and to put those all together. Um, so when I say most, you, you know, you get there, I think you can kind of get through the phonics bit and it helps to show the, the, 
the, the structure. But you also, the more you read and the more you see, the more familiar words become. Um, but it's, it's still, it still leaves you liable to struggle on a long word or to, to trip up if you've got uh, to read out loud. Or if you've got a new word, say in chemistry, where you've, where you've got to break it up and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, work it out. Um, so I'm not reading, reading, the problems in reading remain for many people, uh, but in terms of it being a barrier to getting on with their lives, um, you know, it shouldn't be. Um, and, once, and once you start to be able to do it, the more you do it, the better it gets. So again, one of the things I say to, to children particularly, you know, is I know you don't find this easy, but find things you like and read, 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 because the more you do, the easier it becomes. Can, can I just ask, does everybody know the um, publisher Barrington Stoke? Because Barrington Stoke actually was founded by Patience Thompson, who um, actually her son was about as dyslexic as you can get. And she taught in a school which was specifically for uh, children with dyslexia. I went and worked with her with a, for a week, actually, in London. And um, Barrington Stoke, all the books are tested on children with dyslexia and um, and they are a fantastic range and they've got all the best known authors Michael Morpurgo, Jacqueline Wilson, everybody. In fact it's become a bit of a, a bit, a, a bit a, you know it's, it's, it's quite a coup to be asked to do a Barrington Stoke. Um, so do watch out for them because I do think they are they are very very excellent. There are a number of publishers who do publish books but Barrington Stoke, uh, to my mind, I don't know whether how you feel about this but um, I, th I think they've really got it right because they're such good stories. Yeah. Uh, my great claim to fame for ages was that one of my books was the most popular uh, novel in Strange Ways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So can I just, one of the things that people often say is that there's no such thing in dyslexia as dyslexia in Japan and China. And you, you we were talking about this earlier. And yes. Um, you know the the media like its stories, and and one one of the ones that comes, lots of them come around. No such thing as dyslexia comes around, or oh, it's all the fault of the English language because they learn much better in Finland. Um, that comes around, um, but the truth of the matter is dyslexia exists in all languages. And one of the nice things about the brain imaging studies is that you can actually see across different languages that it's the same sorts of things that are going on. Um, so uh, dyslexia does exist within people, the, what, what it looks like is affected by the language that you're given to learn. Some languages are easier to learn than English. Spanish is a good example. It's very regular and the beat and the syllable structure of Spanish uh, is easy to hear. In English and in French it's not so easy to hear. There's all sorts of swallowed bits that you, you can't tell that they're there. Um, so there's the, there's the sound that you have to tune into and then there's the rules of spelling that you have to tune into. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's in all languages, um, there's a little thing about some s pictographic languages and people say, well, you can't be dyslexic in those languages. One of the answers to that is actually everyone's a bit dyslexic in those languages <laughs> because you've got no structure and you've got no system, so you've just got to learn it word by word. Um, but it, it absolutely does exist uh, universally. So because you were saying you were very good at Latin. Yeah. I did, I, I I got an A for Latin and I got like a D for English. Again, I thought, why didn't someone notice? <laughs> you know, like, yes. I, and you spend your kind of school career thinking that you're just obviously not very bright, but when you look at the, the, 
the grades, that's obviously not the case. Yes. But I, I mean, to this day, I can't, I don't know what an adjective is. You know, it's like you're talking about labels. I don't know what a pronoun is and I managed to get published anyway. I feel like <laughs> I'm going to get caught one day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yes. Um, I think we should have, and could, if we could have a question, that would be really good. I know that there are an enormous number of people with personal experiences, but I think if we can actually stick for the moment to questions, if that's okay, because then that way it's information that we can all share. Um, Matthew, pick somebody. Right, where's our runner? There's our runner. There we are. Here he goes. Watch those twinkie toes. Hello. Um, I would actually like to try and two short questions, if it's possible. Um, I'm, I'm from Spain, and my kids are half Scottish, half Spanish, and they do have a, a degree of dyslexia, so it's very universal. Um, one is a very simple thing is for them, um, uh, reading is homework. And they, though they love storytelling and they love stories, uh, they really find hard reading and they are very slow. So any suggestion to help them, um, to encourage them into reading, apart from obviously good stories, if you have any, that would be fantastic. And the other one is, dyslexia always makes kids feel like they are a bit silly or a bit, mm, all this is a barrier and all that. So, and you say there is things that they are, could be very good at. Another, could you give us another tip of what to encourage them to do, to raise their self-esteem, to, to feel they are absolutely good and as clever as anybody else? I can quickly answer the last one, and, and it's one of the things I, I hesitate to do, but it, that's, one of, that's one of the best reasons to have an assessment. If, you know, if someone says, I'm, I'm hopeless, I'm useless at everything, um, send them to someone like me. Uh, and I would say to people, you know, what we do is we see what you're good at and what you're not so good at. Um, and that's, I mean, I think lots of people are a bit dyslexic and you don't need to have an assessment. You know, it's fine that you feel you are and you kind of know, know about it. Um, but if it's, if it's becoming an issue and, and you're starting to sort of feel you're no good at anything, um, or, you, or else there's other things going on and you think, well, is it that or is it something else? Then an assessment can be can be useful, and that very much focuses on what, what people are good at. Um, so I mean that that's that to me is 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 a is a good thing to do. But it's just a matter of of opportunities. I mean, there's there's no single answer. Um, it's the more it's like all things with with children. You know, you put things in front of them, and you hope that some of them will will be taken up. Um, so you you choose more and more things. Um, but clearly, things that are visual, uh, things that involve uh, movement. Um, you know things that involve not having to write and, 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 and make things seem difficult. But I, I was even before I was here, I was used to say get into drama. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing like putting on and being in a play to develop all these skills in organisation, coordination, sequencing, timing, uh, understanding about the message and the roles and so forth. Um, so singing and dancing, I think, is right up there on my list. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, like, for me, a breakthrough was. I was diagnosed at university and, and it was nice to have that diagnosis because then I kind of understood it wasn't my fault. So I think with children, if you, if you help them externalise it and understand that the reason they're struggling with these simple processes is not their fault. And the other thing, if you can, and it's a subtle thing but you'll develop it, is if you can help them have a sense of humour about dyslexia and not laugh at them for being dyslexic but laugh about dyslexia because you know, very often, mm. I mean I had an incident with my, my editor at the BBC and I had to explain, I also have ADD. And I got an email back saying, "What is EDD?" And I said, "And I saw attention deficit disorder." 
but the spell checker had changed it to attention defecate disorder. Kind <laughs> 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 of implies something entirely different. <laughs> and uh, like recently, when my nephew Corey, he's about six, and he wanted me to read him a story, and he's aware that I have trouble reading, and he's only six, and it was the Gruffalo or something. And he said, "It's okay, Uncle Matthew. If there's any big words, I'll help you out." <laughs> so, I like, so I think like. If you can just not worry about it, take the panic away. And like we were saying earlier about um, with helping children, if you can remind them that, you know, that blank canvas syndrome when you've got a blank piece of paper and you get that anxiety about have to make it immaculate first time, well, just remind them that there's a million more pieces of paper, especially with laptops. It doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you can just start again. You know, there's, there's no pressure to get it right first time and you can, you can make it as messy as you want and within that is your, is your idea or your story. Yeah, absolutely. And music too. I mean, I think, you know, do, you know like you were saying, singing. But I mean, how important was the music to you? Well, you yeah, it was, it was one of the, like I say, like with them, um, I was struggling with English in a classroom um, and at the same time excelling kind of uh, as, a, as, a, as a lyricist. But it, it came from, from studying the Latin, the way they kind of layer uh, all those things like oxymoron and these are concepts I learned in English, but I could only apply in songwriting. So lyrically, but, and they also have that beautiful thing about poetic license, you can mm. almost make up words, which is just, you know, so, so freeing when you're dyslexic. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I think is wonderful nowadays is, um, is text speak. Yeah. Now people are getting really nervous that children are not being literate, but actually I, I think it's just another faster way of communicating, it's just an indictment of our, our modern kind of technological age, mm. but there's no problem with children writing a text speak as long as it communicates across. And you know, if there were ever, if that thing they'd written was ever to get published, then at some point an editor's going to look at it and, and refine it so that people understand it in foreign countries. Mm. But really, it's not a problem. Absolutely. You know? I mean, one of the things I always say when I go into schools is I say, what is what do you have in common between writing, reading, and talking? And they come up with all sorts of clever things like imagination and stuff like that. But actually, the answer is much much simpler. It's words. And I say, okay, how many people here find writing or reading difficult? You know, the hands go up, my hand goes up. And they say, well, how many people here like talking? Yeah, you know? And actually, when you're talking, you're using words and you're communicating. And actually, it's all a question, for my mind, sorry, the important <laughs> thing is the communication. So stories communicate, and there's so many different ways that you can communicate. And actually, it's finding all of those different ways. So, yes, there are many, many different ways. And I think we've still got time for uh, a few more questions. Um, John, would you like to choose somebody? The guy at the back. A white cuff, I see. A white cuff, yes, I can see a white cuff. It's like looking into the distance. Yeah. I um, see Matthew, land. you've mentioned a couple of times being diagnosed when you got to higher education, and you sort of passed over that. I'd like to ask you, um, what was the lead up to that diagnosis and how you felt and how you responded when you were diagnosed? Okay, um, well, I, first of all, I did a, a, a degree in acting at Queen Margaret in Edinburgh. And uh, you, you did, to be an actor, they kind of, you don't need an awful lot of high school hires and stuff like that. It's more about your, your presence on stage. So that wasn't really a problem. But when I was in doing my first degree, um, I got a, a very minimal assessment. It was my my partner's mother at the time was a, a dyslexia, a, um, someone who did the assessments, but so we did it in a kitchen. And she said, you're definitely dyslexic, but because you haven't paid for this assessment, I can't make that official. <laughs> so I gave that to the university and I got a spell checker and 50 pounds uh, for the listening library. That was for a subscription. And so I just kind of got on with it and I got through my degree. Um, 
but then when I went back, I did a master's degree at the Royal Academy in classical and contemporary text because after three years of being an actor, I ended up, uh, I began writing plays. And again, I thought I was going to get caught because there's no qualification in playwriting. So I went back and studied text for a year. Um, and it was the Royal Academy who have, they're just better funded and uh, they paid for the official assessment. And then I got all this stuff, like I got a laptop and you know, thousands of pounds worth of technology, Dragon Speak, I think, I got all those things. But for me, it was just affirming, like, you know, the, all those little struggles I had with processing. And it was just um, to validate that that wasn't my fault. I was, you know, it didn't equate to my intelligence. It was more just the processing. And it was it was quite um, encouraging to have that recognised. But like you say, it's not it's not important to to have that. But for me, I think in my industry where it is very text based, and to have that validated was was important. But um, it was quite concerning when all they gave me was a spell checker because a spell checker really something like I was saying with with defecate, you can write a word and it's so wrong the spell it's a completely different word. So that you have to you have to start with the right letter, don't you? I know exactly. I mean, you know, I I can remember looking up physical. And I couldn't find it anywhere on the spell checker. It just wasn't there. And I said to somebody, it hasn't got physical on it. And they said, well, it's probably because it begins with a P. Yes. And it was like, oh, right, okay, yes. Is, is that common for somebody to it, be... It is. Uh, well, sorry, you were going to say... I was to going to say, for somebody to be diagnosed at, at, at that particular stage. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a shame that often people have to wait. But, but dyslexia is... It, if it doesn't trip you up, you know, it's best just to get on. Um, however, it's best to stop it tripping you up if you possibly can. So what we're always arguing for is early intervention. Because if you start before someone starts to struggle and feel that they're failing, um, and you keep them going, then you know, they needn't feel they've got any sort of difficulty. In fact, they needn't have any major difficulty. Well, they'll always be there a little bit, and you always have to keep your eye out. But if you get in early, um, at the beginning and look out for the risk signs uh, and, and, uh, and take some action, um, particularly to you know, encourage reading, build confidence, find other ways of doing things, laugh off the spelling, um, you know, keep, keep confidence and motivation up. Uh, then you, don't, you, know, you can get through and you don't need to have that formal recognition. Uh, but when it comes to sort of being registered as a disabled student or, or at work, maybe you need to declare that you, you have dyslexia can be a disability, um, you know, if you, <laughs> it, 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 it's actually quite important in some circumstances that you do come, come you know, up front with that. Um, uh, nursing is one example where you know, it really matters that people get the right doses. Um, um, so, you know, it's, it's, dyslexia has a, obviously a serious side to it as well as the, you know, laughing it off. Uh, there are some circumstances where you don't want someone who might reverse the letters <laughs> and give you the wrong thing. Um, but uh, so, so in those circumstances, then you do you need to have the good assessments, and you need to have the systems in place. Just numbers. Yes, yes. Uh, it, dyslexia often goes along with difficulties with maths, but you can also have maths difficulties that are not part of dyslexia. Um, the example I was going to give you is to ask you in your heads to take away uh, fifty-seven from seventy-five. And almost all people who are dyslexic will be asking me to repeat the numbers, or which way around it was, or having to do something clever. Well, 57, that's nearly 60, so I'll take yeah. 60, and that's, what did he say, 75, so that's uh, 15, and the 3 goes back on, so 18, I think. Um, you know, um, 
but many people who are not dyslexic will do it straight away because they, they've got the ability to, to hold on to that, all those words, to twist them around and to, and to process them easily and quickly. Um, being dyslexic and not always quickly remembering the facts, uh, getting them in the right order, it, it affects maths. So um, that's for, for, for very many. For very I, many. I love the fact that when you said that, there was this sort of mumbling. You know, you could hear everybody <laughs> getting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, because no, because I mean, I come from a generation where we used to have to do um, mental maths. What was it called? You know, and in, in the classroom, and people, and you were supposed to answer click, click, click like that, and um, and, and it was yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's hard to learn, but you can learn it. I taught my own son to learn by stamping around the kitchen, you know, um, you know, with with rhythm and with repetition uh, and, and 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 so forth. You 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 know, you, you can get it in there uh, if 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 you have to. I mean, increasingly you don't have to. Yes. Yeah, it's just um, going back to a point about higher education. For anyone who is dyslexic who's thinking about or anxious about higher education. Um, one of the things what, which frustrates me as a, someone who's dyslexic in the industry, I hear people say, well, I can't do that because I'm dyslexic. And that kind of reflects badly on everyone else because it's not that you can, it'll just be, you'll need to find mm. other ways of doing it. And so when I was doing that master's degree, it was a one year intensive course. And for instance, if we had an assignment, instead of being given extra time, because very often they want to accommodate and you say, well, you can, you can hand it in when it's ready. And I'm like, well, no, actually, I'd much rather have it earlier, you know. So I used to ask for if we had an assignment coming up, I would get it two weeks before everyone else, and that, I mean, in a sense, that gave me an advantage, but not really. But it just meant that I was on time with everyone else, because if they do that thing of extending your deadlines, it means you fall out of sync with the rest of the class, and I never wanted that to happen. So I would, I, you know, of course, you just got to accept the fact that you're going to have to work a little bit harder because you have these processes, but you don't have to accept that and be defeatist and say, well, I can't because I'm dyslexic. So. Was there anything else on your magic screen that you wanted to show us? Just um, there was there was one thing I wanted just to show. Um, I I I won't go through that, but I, I put it up about what teachers can do um, um, and about making lear learning multisensory. Uh, but I just thought, um, and I and I won't go through this either. But there are sort of clever things you can do to help people understand about I the process. You do that. I okay. Do that. I do that. Uh, and the story grid, which is really helpful for organising. People asking for practical tips. Um, so who, where, what happens. It's a bit like the consequences. It provides a structure. You can get some of the ideas in there. Um, and uh, so that's some, a, a real example. You've got better ones. But, but what, what I just wanted to do is just, just, to, um, um, just to put this up at the end. Um, you know, what you can do. Because... You know, you can go through some parts of it, you can go around other parts of it, and you can get over other parts of it. Um, and uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist putting the, uh, the Rapunzel, you know, I have a dream thing up, because, you know, whatever you want to do, you really can do it. Uh, understand your strengths and that bit of self-awareness. Uh, and, um, and, and, it, and it's a combination of things. Some things you can get through, some things you can get around, some things you can get over, and it's different for everyone. And I, I, I found this lovely picture on the internet uh, of visual stories. Um, and I just wanted to end with m my last bit, was to say, you know, it's not just about words, but there are many, many ways of expressing yourself and finding the path that works for you. So that was my, uh, that was my end. And what, my email if anyone needs to ask any more questions. Right. What, what would be your final message to everybody? Um, 
my final message. Oh, final message. Um, yeah, just your just, terminal destination. I think the most important thing is find a sense of humour about it because it's not. I don't see it as a disadvantage. I can't even speak now. I don't see it as a disadvantage. I just see. I just see that it, it forces you to find other ways of being creative, and that's that's more exciting than just being able to learn like everyone does. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have been sitting here for the last five minutes because I've just remembered that I completely forgot at the beginning to say that I should offer on behalf of the Book Festival a huge thank you to the Welcome Foundation which actually made it possible for this event to take place. So I would just like to state here and now a huge thank you and um, because without them you know we wouldn't be here but uh, obviously even more than the Welcome Foundation I would on your behalf like to say a huge thank you to my two guests because I don't know about you but I just think it's been absolutely fascinating and I love these events because it always makes me go away thinking well maybe you know sometimes I think it's just increasing old age that I forget things but then my pair of daughters always say but mum you've always forgotten them you've always got words wrong you always call us right at the wrong name so it is very comforting and it's good to know but could you please put your hands together and give a huge round of applause to my guests here, Dr. John Rack, I've got it right, yeah. and Matthew Mavarish. I don't remember my own name, so thank you very much indeed. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.